Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Um, well, hello. It's great to be here this morning. Uh, my name is Mark. I have the, um, the privilege of working at Mueller College, which is the uh, sister school to Carmichael, which is on campus here. And I'm on the speaking team here, which is, uh, which is an incredibly privileged as well. Uh, if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you at some stage. So um, a few years ago, I was involved in starting some churches, uh, university campuses in the city. And I was with a bunch of mates. And um, when you do anything with mates, uh, I don't know what your friends are like, but particularly young uh, men tend to pay each other out a lot. And um, that's all fine. We, we had a really good time. One day, I was speaking at one of our churches and... Um, as part of the talk, I like to show videos every now and again. No one seems to appreciate my videos. No one seems to watch movies in this church. But I watched, uh, I showed a video. Anyway, it's a funny video. something stupid that happened on YouTube that I found. I thought I'll show it as part of the talk. I show the video, but then the whole thing stuffs up. I don't know what happened. We had technology issues. No one's laughing. The whole thing crashed. And then everyone missed the, the funny bit of the video. So I thought, okay, I'm going to save this. I'll get up and I'll explain what was going to happen in the video and explain to everyone why they should find it funny and then they'll laugh, which of course did not work at all. You can't explain a funny video. It was a complete disaster. Now, that's all fine, except one of my mates was sitting about, you know, about four or five rows back. As I went through this entire disaster, the video didn't work and I tried to explain why it was funny and explain why they should be laughing. No one's laughing. My friend who loves me and cares for me yells out at the top of his voice, Fail. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's harsh, right? This is harsh. This is not a good way. And then because we're mates and because I'm an Aussie and because I'm a bloke, this is the way we show affection is to pay each other out. I thought I need a comeback. So he yells out, fail. And I say to him, I guess that word's been on the tip of your tongue since you looked at yourself in the mirror this morning. And I'm like, yes. And everyone else is like, you're really harsh. Like, that's a really harsh thing to say. You're like, why are you in a church? How are you? You know, you know, the whole thing was a disaster. So anyway, my, my talk today, um, we're in a series called The Choice Is Yours, and we've been asking, what is the wise thing to do? And I'm a bit worried that today is going to be a bit of a fail. And, and not because, you know, what we've got to say hopefully won't be helpful, but it is a bit confusing. We're going to look at one passage today, and the passage is this. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, if you've been around church a little bit, if you've grown up in church, chances are you've heard of this passage from the Bible. There are some passages that get quoted more than others, and there's good reason why this passage gets quoted. But if you kind of step back and start to think about what's being said in this very short you know, verse, it's very confusing like for one thing, I don't, I don't know what your experience is, but I don't tend to walk around using the term Lord very often. Unless we're talking about Lord Voldemort or Lord of the Rings or something like that, I don't use that term very often. And many people, those of us who haven't grown up in the church, we tend to think of God as God. We don't necessarily use the term Lord, but it just means in this case, it's just referring to God. But then even more confusing is this idea of the fear of the Lord, the fear of God. Are we meant to be, you know, running around terrified that God is out to get us? Is that the kind of fear that we're meant to have? And, and, and more so, how does, that, how does that the beginning of wisdom? Are we saying that, that, that someone who doesn't believe in God or doesn't fear God has no wisdom, like has no, nothing to contribute, no, no insight? No in, like, I mean, this is a very confusing and perhaps even an offensive 
passage from the Bible. So if you're kind of new to church, then, then one of the things that will probably happen at some stage is you'll begin to pick up a Bible and try to read it for yourself. And hopefully you'll have a good experience of that. But it could be that you come across passages that are confusing. And I guess today we want to look at one that could be a bit confusing. And that's fine. So this is maybe just an encouragement that not to get up too quickly, not to be turned off too easily, but to hang in there because often there's good explanations. So to look at this passage, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In the context of what is the wise thing to do, we've been asking the question in light of our our past experience, our present circumstances, our future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do? The writer of Proverbs writes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I want to ask a series of questions today to help us break this down. And the first question is this. Do we need to live in fear that God is out to get us? That's a valid question. Um, Paul, a church leader in the first century, he wrote to the church at Rome and he said this. All who sin apart from the law, will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, what Paul is saying, this church leader, this Christian leader is saying, is there is a standard that we need to meet about how to treat others and how to live life rightly or correctly or properly in this world. Now, it may be that you're from a religious background and you've been given a set of laws, a set of commands. You've been given the law, in a sense, and you kind of lived under that. And if you've lived under those things, you're going to one day be judged by that law. But it might very well be that there are some of us who haven't come from that background. And the writer, um, the, the Paul here, the writer to the church at Rome, is saying, even those of us who haven't lived under the law, even those who haven't received this religious instruction from an early age, we know in our heart what is right and wrong, and we also will be judged. We also will perish if we haven't lived according to what we know is right and proper. Now, the idea of this is that when any person reads this kind of stuff, and this is what every religion does, you set a standard, and then you try to meet that standard. And as you know, those of us who've ever tried to do this, that is not an easy thing to do. It's really, really, really hard to love people who hate you. It's really hard to forgive people who've hurt us. It's hard to to take people back into your life when they've betrayed you or abandoned you in the past. It's difficult to treat people rightly and correctly and lovingly and with mercy and forgiveness at all times. So Paul goes on to write, hey, listen, just in case you're a religious person or just in case you think you're going pretty well and just in case I think I've got it going on when it comes to this standard, he goes on to say in in chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. So now we've got this standard that we ought to meet and now he's saying we haven't met it. All of us fall short of the standard. So should we rightly live in fear that God is out to get us? There's a standard that we should meet, we haven't met it, and now this seems there is a judgment coming, there is a penalty for our crime, there is a penalty for our sin. Now yes, God must judge us according to the standard. God must judge us according to the law. And He is going to, unfortunately, this is terrifying, He is going to find us guilty of not meeting that standard. And rightly so, Because the Lord demands justice and He is just, He is going to have to enforce a penalty that that law requires. 
So in other words, all of us are in a huge amount of trouble. Should we be living in fear that God is out to get us? Is this what the fear of the Lord means? No. God is not out to get us. God loves us. He created us in His image. He longs to spend eternity with us. He is not out to get us. He is not out to destroy us. He didn't create Adam and Eve just so He could watch them do nudie runs in the garden and then zap them to hell. That was not His intent. God loves us and longs to be with us. So how does God look at the standard that we have not met, judge us according to that standard, standard, find us guilty, and enforce the penalty that that standard, that that law requires? At the same time, find a way to get us off scot-free. Check out this video. There once were two little boys who were best friends. They played together went to school together, they even went to university together. They were inseparable, until their careers took them in very different directions. One became a lawyer, the other a criminal. As one was promoted to a judge, the other disappeared deeper and deeper into a life of crime. Eventually, the criminal was caught and sent to trial. On the fateful day in the courtroom, he came face to face with his old best friend, the judge. And so, the judge had a dilemma. He loved his friend, but he had to do justice. And so, he fined him the appropriate penalty for the offence. It was a huge fine. There was no way he could ever afford to pay what he owed. But then, the judge took off his robes went down, stood with his friend, and wrote out a cheque covering the cost. He paid the penalty himself. The Bible says that Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. God is not out to get us. God is out to save us. God is not out to condemn us. He is out to rescue us. God is not out to destroy us. He longs to spend eternity with us. So the question is, Question two, if we do not need to fear that God is out to get us, what does it then mean to fear God? If we do not need to fear that God is out to get us, what does it mean to fear God? So rather than get caught up in like definitions and, and technicalities or whatever, maybe it's just best to describe who this God is. According to the Bible, according to the, the, the Scriptures, this God is the God who literally spoke a word and created the universe in a moment. This is the God who, when he looked at the world and the evil that had, had taken place, he spoke a word and flooded the earth in an instant. This is the God who, when he looked at his people, the Israelites, and he looked at them being chased and attacked, he literally split the Red Sea in two. This is the God who made the sun stand still. This is not just some cuddly teddy bear in the sky. This is the God of the universe who is above all things. Theologians describe God as being omnipotent. Omni meaning all potent. All potent. All powerful. And yet here we are as mere mortals. We couldn't go, you know, any more than four, five, six, seven minutes without oxygen and we'd be dead. It's literally a comparison between God's almighty power and might 
and our mortality and our brokenness and our feebleness. To fear the Lord means to recognise God for who He is and to rightly recognise ourselves for who we are. In the book of Job, God speaks to Job and He says this, Who is it that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. In other words, Jesus is not our homeboy. Every now and again, you see people wearing Christian t-shirts with kind of weird, freaky sayings on them. And you'll see, Jesus is my homeboy. No, he is the God of the universe who speaks and calms the storm, who speaks and raises the dead, who speaks and heals the sick, who speaks and casts out demons. He is not our homeboy. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end, the eternal one who created all things. He is not a phase that we go through. He's not like, hey, anyone been watching MasterChef recently? We get into MasterChef, let's get into The Bachelor, let's get into whatever the next TV show is. He's not a phase that we go through. We don't go, you know, JC is like really cool, Jesus is cool, let's get into Jesus, and then three months later we're into something else. That's not how this works. And Jesus is certainly not a product to sell. Over the past 12 months as a church, we've been really concerned, or we've been concerned for a very long time, that we want to make um, the message of Jesus and, and this life that He wants to offer people as accessible as possible to as many as possible. So many years ago, 12, 13, 14 years ago, um, Vernon Trish Hazelwood started this church with a view to eventually start Carmichael College and Carmichael Kids and the cafe and the whole thing that you see around here because they wanted to engage the community. People who wouldn't necessarily walk through the doors of a church but might be willing to engage in some other activities and learn about Jesus. And over the past 12 months, we've been really asking some questions. What does it look like to make this environment on a Sunday morning more accessible to people outside church? And, and that's a really important thing to do. We need to you know, think through, well, are we unnecessarily confusing people? Are we, are we, are we trying to, to, you know, are we unnecessarily, you know, making it very difficult for people who want to come to faith? And I believe in this. Like, I, I spent eight years starting churches in the city on university campuses with this in mind. And it works. People long to experience Jesus. This idea that people are not interested in Jesus is rubbish. The statistics say one in six non-church people would come to church this Sunday if a friend invited them. Two in six said they might come. One half of those who don't go to church are open to an invitation. And we need to think through our language. We need to think through the way we do things. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, the church leader, he said, I fully expect people who are not Christians to walk through the doors. And because there's going to be people who are not Christians walking through the doors, we need to take that into account in our practices. We need to adapt and think about, is this going to be unnecessarily confusing, unnecessarily unhelpful for those who are walking in? And he instructed the church at Corinth to make those changes. I believe all of that. 
I've given my life to this. Many people in this church have given their life to this. But here's the danger. At no time are we suggesting that Jesus is a product to sell. At no time are we trying to just get some kind of activity here where we're trying to entertain people. At no time are we foolish enough to think that we're trying to compete with the beach or the cinemas or the shopping center. That's not what this is about. We're trying to create a community where people who maybe have got questions or doubts about Jesus, who long to experience what it is that we have, can come and in their own time, in their own journey, ask questions, come as they are, belong before they believe. But we're not selling a product. This is not, hey, let's try to make Jesus really cool and then one day people will be No, Jesus is the eternal one. He is the one who raises the dead. He is the one who holds the key to death and Hades. He is the one over all things. Before he ascended, he said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. In his book, The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis um, uh, had a character called Aslan. And Aslan was a lion. And in his fictional story, Aslan the lion played the the role of the Jesus figure. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote. Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He is the king, I tell you. Um, This is a picture of my friend's daughter, Ollie, and her dog. The dog's name is Tiny. Ollie is 19 kilos. Tiny is 86 kilos. And he's scary. When Ollie was nine months old, uh, she was rushed to the hospital. Within about 24 hours, they realized she needed a heart transplant. 12 months later, she had that transplant and everything was successful. Everything seemed to be back on track. About 12 months after that, she got some kind of virus. Her immune system is not very strong. They have to give her medications every day uh, to to weaken her immune system because her natural immune system wants to attack the foreign heart that's been placed in her body. So they, they, she had a weak immune system. She picked up a virus. That virus went to the brain. She was unconscious for about a week. They thought they were going to lose her. She eventually came out of whatever that was, a coma or whatever. And uh, she had significant brain damage. She'd been having seizure after seizure after seizure after seizure. And now, today, she has anywhere between 50 and 200 seizures a day. Uh, she has significant brain damage, can only say four or five words. Somewhere along the line, it's, it's a horrific story, actually. It's traumatic. Somewhere along the line, my friend Corey, he, he realised that when she is occupied and when her brain is engaged, she has less seizures. And uh, they were playing one day on holidays and there was a dog around and the more she played with the dog, the less seizures she had. So they decided to buy Tiny for Ollie. I'm not sure why you would buy such a big dog for such a small child. This is my friend. He does silly things. Um, now, Ollie plays with Tiny all the time. They've not trained Tiny to look after Ollie. He just instinctively knows what to do. It's an incredible thing to watch. One day, I often talked to him on the way home from work. I was talking about four o'clock and I said, um, 
you know, what are you up to? He goes, oh, I'm just at the dog park. And he's telling me what he's doing. They're playing there. Ollie's running around on the grass. She has all these drop seizures, but she can run around on the grass. It's pretty safe. And there's all these other dogs at the dog park. And all of a sudden, my friend Corey's like, got to go. And he hangs up. He calls me like about five minutes later. He goes, oh, sorry. One of the other dogs in the dog park came up to Ollie and got really close. So Tiny, his dog, literally grabbed the other dog in its mouth and threw it away. And he said that caused a few issues with the other dog owners. So he goes, I had to have a bit of a conversation. Tiny is not safe. I've been to their house several times. He's scary. He's terrifying. I mean, you know, his bark is big, you know, but he's 86 kilos. He is not safe. But he literally knows that his job is to take care of Ollie. He is good. Third question. Why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? This is pretty offensive, right? Hey guys, you want to be smart, you want to be wise. If you don't want to be like a fool, you don't want to be stupid, then you need to fear God. You need to believe in God. Us Christians, us believers in God, we're smart, we're wise, we're intelligent. Everyone else is dumb and stupid. Is this what it's saying? Well, of course not. There are incredibly smart people who weren't Christians. There are incredibly smart people in the world who are atheists. There are incredibly smart people who are Buddhist and Islam, Muslim and and Hindu and all sorts of different religious backgrounds. So what is it about the fear of the Lord that makes it the beginning of wisdom? Are we saying that the people who don't believe in God don't have good advice when it comes to relationships or exercise or mental health or finances or the housing market? Of course not. Many of us are getting advice from all sorts of people. It's not that we need to necessarily believe in God to have good life advice or to have good um, thinking or intelligence about these issues. Some of the most brilliant people in the world are not Christian. So what is it about this passage? What is it that the writer of Proverbs is meaning? Check out this video. Emmett, wait. Batman, there's something I need to say to you. No, Wildstyle. I mean, Lucy. He's the hero you deserve. Thanks, Batman. (laughs) I liked Emmett before it was cool. Whoops, I have the antidote for the craggle. How did that happen? What's this? Oh, Yay. Mommy, Daddy, you're okay. Oh, son. Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. <laughs> We're okay, son. <laughs> hey, guys, time to come up for dinner. It's Taco Tuesday, your favorite. Okay, honey, we'll be up in a sec. Yeah, we'll be up in a sec. I got to tell you something. What? Now that I'm letting you come down here and play, guess who else gets to come down here and play? Who? Your sister. What? Well, things sure have a way of working out smoothly. Am I right, guys? What? There we go. Has anyone seen that movie? Seriously, no one goes to the movies here. Uh, This is a picture of Finn and his dad. Finn's dad's been played by Will Farrell in this movie. 
Now, Finn's dad has been playing Lego all his life. I am imagining it's, you know, that he's probably very, very wise when it comes to Lego building. He probably has more skill and more intelligence about building a spaceship and building like castles and how, you know, the fire truck, you know, I, who knows what it is. But he would have a lot of wisdom when it comes to the world of Lego. He probably knows more about Lego than most of us would ever care to know. He's incredibly wise in the Lego world. But that is not all there is to the world. There is a bigger world than the Lego world. Now, sometimes those pieces of wisdom, that wisdom that he has in the Lego world, help the bigger world. So, for instance, because he's so good at Lego, he's got the opportunity to play with his son, Finn, and his daughter, He's got an opportunity to bond with his children over Lego and give them advice and teach them how to play and write good storylines and all that kind of stuff. His Lego wisdom flows over to the real world. And if he was alive today in Australia, he would have the opportunity to go on the Lego Masters competition with Hamish. And again, his Lego wisdom would flow over to the real world. But the Lego world is not the only world. There is a bigger world world. When it comes to relationship advice or finance advice or stuff about the housing market or leadership or mental health or physical fitness, whatever it is, all the advice that is out there is helpful in this physical world that we see, this material world. But what if this is not all there is to the world? What if there's not just a physical world but a spiritual world? What if there's not just this temporary life but there's actually an eternal life. What if there's not just us running around as mere mortals, doing our own thing, every man for himself, helping each other out here or there? But what if there is a God who is above all things, who can speak a word and create the universe, speak a word and heal the sick, but is loving and kind and cares for us and wants nothing but the best for us? In light of that, some of the decisions that we would make if the physical world was the only world may not be the same decisions that we would make if there is a bigger world, a spiritual world, an eternal world, and a God above the world who loves us and cares for us. Let me see if I explain. Let's say when it comes to money, if, you, if, if I just believe there's a physical world, I should get good financial advice. I should probably find a way to get a good job, to get a good income. I could make decisions based on what's going to give me a pay rise, negotiate good conditions with my employer, or maybe go out and start my own business, learn the tax system, get a good accountant, look into superannuation, look into investment, learn about the housing market, make sure that I'm not being too you know, scungy because we know that generosity leads to you know, contentment, but at the same time, I don't want to give too much away because I want to save for my retirement. There would be all these good financial decisions we would make. And if the physical world was the only world, we would be able to follow everything that the good financial advisors would tell us to do. But if there's not just the physical world, if there's a spiritual world, then that could change things. If there's not just this life here on earth, but there's an eternity, that could change things. If there's not just us fending for ourselves, but there's a God who's above all things, who created all things, who can provide for us in a moment, and who loves us and cares for us, that could change things. Maybe I'm not going to be as careful about saving for the future, but maybe I'm going to be radically generous and trust that the God who created the universe can provide for me. 
Maybe it's not so much about what I can get out of this physical world, but it's about seeing the eternal people that God has placed in front of me and leveraging every dollar I have for the sake of their life and their eternity. Maybe there's a very different way of looking at the world once we see the bigger picture. Or when it comes to housing, I remember years ago, a friend of mine said, I want to be generous. I want to give generously, but I have a house to pay off and I can't be generous and have this house. Now, what do you say to that? Like, are you saying, are we saying that people can't own houses? Well, no, like we, we read about the early church and some of the, the people who, who put their faith in Jesus and their lives were turned upside down, some of them, in a moment, they were like, you know what? I don't really need this house. I can live with my family. We've actually got enough to live. You know, there's four or five, six of us can get together in the one house. We could sell these houses and give the money to the poor. So many of them did. And they were incredibly, radically generous. The kind of generosity people look at and go, that's crazy. But they trusted God. Others said, no, hang on, someone needs to have a house, so I'm going to keep a house, and we're going to provide for other people, and we're going to share our possessions, and we're going to invite people over. We're actually going to do church in our house. Vernon Trish started this church in a house. I remember speaking at the church years ago. Did you have, like, what did you have in the backyard? Cattle or something? Horses or sheep or something? It was hilarious. It was fantastic. It was the best church ever. But the reality is it's not about whether you own a house or not own a house. It's about in light of the fact that this physical world is not all there is. There is a spiritual world. This world is not all there is. There's an eternity waiting to happen. In light of the fact that it's not, we are not all there is, that there's a God of the universe who loves us and cares for us and can provide for us. Maybe it is that you've got a job offer. Maybe you've been offered a job and, and, and someone's saying to you, listen, this new job, it's a promotion, there's more money. Everyone's saying, according to the, to the wisdom of this physical world, you should go. But you know there's a, there's a mate at work who's going through a really hard time. They've just been through a divorce, they're struggling with depression and they're, they're, just, they're just finding it really hard to get to work every day. And you just feel like the God of the universe is saying to you, you know what, I've, I've got your future in my hand. You don't need to worry. Right now, I've placed you in this environment. Don't leave. Stay for another 12 months. This is the time to minister and care for your friend at work. In light of the spiritual, in light of eternity, in light of the fact there is a God who cares for us, maybe what looks wise in this physical world isn't necessarily the wise decision in light of the big picture. So today, I simply want to do this. What does it look like to acknowledge who God is and to be caught up in the fact that this God is above all things. Like I remember one day just realizing what God can do in an instant, our collective efforts cannot do in a lifetime. If God has all authority on heaven and earth, he has authority over sickness, authority over death, authority over circumstances, authority over the hearts and minds and wills of men and women. If he has authority over evil, then surely we could walk through this world knowing God is all-powerful. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And not just powerful, but good. Loving, caring, doing everything He can. Not out to get us, but to live with us, to live in us, to live through us, so that we could be used for His purposes in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you sent Jesus not to condemn but to save. You sent Jesus for me, who's a sinner, who's broken, who is messed up in many ways. And thank you, Jesus, that you love me. 
I am so aware of my brokenness. We're also aware of our need for you, Jesus. We acknowledge your authority and your power. We acknowledge that you are above all things. And the best way we know how, God, again, we surrender our lives to you. Would you remind us that you died on the cross to pay for our sin in full, that no condemnation rests upon those of us who put our faith in you, that we are free from sin and death and shame and condemnation, that we have a life that is going to last everlasting. Thank you so much, Jesus, that you came for me. Thank you that you came for sinners. God, we believe that you are powerful and we acknowledge and thank you that you're so good. Amen.